2: Hey, uh, before we get going, I want to tell you about a podcast I like, Family Ghosts from Spoke Media. In every episode of Family Ghost, someone tells the story of a legendary figure from their family's past and then tries to figure out the truth about that person's life, what impact it had on them in the present day. Uh, They've investigated grandmothers who are secretly members of international jewel smuggling rings. They even helped a man track down his grandfather's stolen corpse. Uh, So their third season is out now. It's got a three-part documentary about the survivors of the last slave ship to enter the U.S., a comedic memoir, an audio drama, all kinds of really great stuff. Uh, You can find it wherever you listen to podcasts, Family Ghosts. Thanks to them for uh, sponsoring this week's show.
3: Hello and welcome to the Longform podcast. I am Evan Ratliff, your co-host. I'm here in New York City. I'm speaking to Max Linsky in Los Angeles, Aaron Lammer at an undisclosed cave.
2: Hey, hey, everybody! Don't dox me. <laughs> I feel like you just disclosed it by calling it the cave. Yeah, it's pretty. <laughs> it's pretty easy if you know about a cave to correlate this to my other now defunct crypto podcasts and identify the dirty basement that I'm currently sitting in. Aaron, you're giving away too much. We are all in uh, different places, but Evan, you recorded this episode also in a uh, different place.
3: That is correct. Uh, This episode is with Andy Greenberg. He is a staff writer for, senior staff writer, I believe, for Wired Magazine. Uh, Andy has reported on cybersecurity for a long time, he's gotten a lot of big scoops. Uh, written a lot of great pieces. For this episode, I interviewed him at the Wired 25 uh, festival out in San Francisco some weeks back. This is the second year that we've done this. I did one last year as well. And uh, so it's a live show for an audience there. Uh, But we talked about this book that he has out called Sandworm. Uh, Sandworm is a group of Uh, It's a Russian group. It's a group of hackers uh, who have been wreaking havoc all over the world, particularly in Ukraine. And it's also about uh, a particular cyber attack called NotPetya. So we sort of jump into that from the beginning. Uh, Andy's a fantastic reporter. I really love talking to him.
2: If you just want to get right to it, there's no better way to do that than with an email newsletter. They're direct They're in people's inbox, and they actually read them. Get one from MailChimp. They make it very easy and uh, very affordable. And they make this show possible. Thanks, MailChimp. Here's Evan with Andy Greenberg.
3: So I wanted to start with the book. And maybe for people who have not read it or aren't familiar with it, you could give a little bit of non-spoiler background on
0: what Sandworm is. Right. So I came to this story because Wired's editors actually in late 2016, they asked me to find a big story of cyber war. In fact, they wanted to do a takeover of the whole magazine and the way that the New York Times magazine does sometimes about like climate change or the Middle East to do an entire issue just on cyber war. And I was kind of resistant to that idea, actually. I mean, I said yes, because of course you say yes to like doing that sort of big thing. But I think that they had on their mind like something about the election hacking of 2016, like Russian hackers who had meddled in the 2016 presidential election, which I didn't see as cyber war. So I went looking for what I could serve up as like a real cyber war story. And I I had been reading about what had happened in Ukraine, what was happening in Ukraine, I should say. And the fact that a group of hackers had caused the first ever blackout triggered with a, a cyber attack. This is the 2015? That's right, in, in December of 2015. And as I read more and I talked to sources about what was actually happening in Ukraine, I could see that actually it was part of a much larger campaign of attacks all across Ukraine, that, that it hit every part of Ukrainian society, and then finally kind of climaxing in 2015 with this blackout where they had the hackers had taken over the mouse movements of these grid operators in a in a Western Ukrainian electric utility. And they, these poor staff in this control room had watched as the mouse on their screen was clicking through circuit breakers and opening them and turning off the power to thousands of Ukrainian civilians. And they couldn't do anything about it. They were locked out of their own computers. And that to me was like, this is not only like a almost Hollywood style hacking event, but it's in the midst of this actual cyber war unfolding. So... I could see that there was a story, a real cyber war story to be told. And as I was reading about this, it happened again. These hackers turned off the power in the capital of Kiev in the, the second ever blackout in history caused by hackers. And so at this point, I was like, who are these hackers? And I I went back to the kind of initial discovery of this one group that had carried out this series of attacks. Uh, they had been found by a little company called Eyesight Partners outside of D.C., and they appeared to be Russian because, in fact, iSight's analysts had found an open server that the hackers were using that had a Russian language how-to file for how to use this malware that they were planting on all of their victims' computers. And there was not the best job of covering their tracks. No, it seemed like they learned over time about how to be a little more careful. But also, they at that point, this one group was in each instance of, of planting their malware, they had a little snippet of code, and those snippets were references to the sci-fi novel Dune. And so Eyesight, the company that discovered this uh, kind of network of attacks, called them Sandworm, in a reference to this kind of monstrous, like, underground creature that lives in the deserts of Dune in this book, which turned out to be this kind of perfect name for this group that kind of stays beneath the surface and then occasionally rises to do terrible, terribly destructive things. So they soon found that the same hackers had also planted their malware in the U.S. grid as well. When I found that out, I was like, this is bigger than I even had thought. Like, uh, And I was like, this is... In fact, at that point, I told Wired's editors that we didn't have time to do a full takeover of the issue. We needed to just write this story. This was a very substantial and distinct story of the first true cyber war unfolding in Ukraine with, with implications for American national security. And we did a, a kind of normal cover story about Sandworm and these attacks in Ukraine. And the premise of it was... That we should watch what's happening in Ukraine because it's become a test lab for a cyber war. That that cyber war happening in Ukraine will sooner or later spill out to the West. Yeah, which turned out to be exactly what happened. Yeah, indeed, that
3: is what took place. Well, that's what I mean. I feel like this is a book that I, I, in some sense, I've been waiting for someone to write, and it's partly because since really the '90s, if you follow this stuff people talking about digital Pearl Harbor, or then it was like became digital 9-11, like this phrase for an event, a cyber attack or a cyber war exercise like spills over into the real world in some dramatic way. But I feel like that also represents a challenge. Like when you first approached it, did you feel having covered this for many years, cynical about the idea that this could be possible? Or were you a person who thought, oh, this is coming I see the signs of it coming
0: right I, I think cyber war like even when my editors sort of asked for that i was sort of like well that's a term that has all of this baggage because we've all read these stories of like what if hackers turned off the power what if hackers destroyed all the computers inside of a bank what if hackers took down the medical record systems of hospitals and those are kind of played out sort of fear mongery stories about some hypothetical future it just happens that actually this has happened now. And, and the story that I tell in this book is about all of those things happening. Literally all of those things I just mentioned happened in Ukraine. And then actually the rest of the world too, this Ukrainian cyber war did spill out to become, I don't want to say a cyber 9-11 because it's like, uh, I don't know, that's kind of a terrible phrase, but it's yeah. like this kind of massive global cyber attack really did happen. In fact, it happened the day that Wired cover story hit newsstands, bizarrely, this prediction, like you don't really want your prediction to come true that quickly, Uh, like you don't even really get credit for it if it happens like that day. (laughs) But that is basically the NotPetya, this climactic, truly catastrophic piece of malware hit Ukraine and spread to the rest of the world the very day that this sort of predictive story came out in Wired. That's amazing. (laughs) Yeah, it was kind of bizarre. I mean, we didn't immediately recognize that. Yeah. Because NotPetya, this worm, was made to look like ransomware, like a piece of malware that locks up your computer and you pay you're supposed to pay some amount of money. $300 is what you know, your screen goes black and then shows this ransom message asking for $300 in Bitcoin to unlock your computer. It turned out that even if you paid that, you wouldn't get your computer back. Like it would remain, in fact, like fully encrypted and destroyed, essentially. NotPetya was a destructive worm that was made to look like a cyber criminal ransomware worm. I feel like there
3: are a lot of reporting challenges in this, approaching these subjects and the in particular, that really fascinate me. And one of them is just the fact that victims of these particular attacks are often reluctant to talk about the way they were victimized. So I'm particularly interested in, for NotPetya, you write about how Marisk, this big shipping company, just was afflicted in absolute disaster for like global logistics commerce and their company, hundreds of millions of dollars, as I if I recall correctly. So how did you get people from inside there to tell you what happened. Because yeah, you haven't yeah. in very intimate detail
0: what happened to them. Well, you're you're right that getting victims of a cyber war attack to talk is absolutely a huge challenge in this kind of reporting. But I found that the easiest trick, first, before we get to Mersk was to talk to Ukrainians because... Even in that first piece I did for Wired, I had been to Ukraine. I went to Ukraine. I talked to the operators of these facilities who had been attacked with these, you know, sabotage events that caused blackouts. And I found that Ukrainians are always willing to tell those stories. And they also are experiencing things that nobody else is experiencing in the world. But they're tired of the global community ignoring this war, this invasion from Russia. So, so when you um, showed up, they were like, come. Yeah. Um, come here's, look here. here's the video I filmed on my iPhone of the mouse cursor being taken over to cause a blackout. It's kind of a reporter's dream. So when NotPetya hits and we started to see the scale of it, that it was costing global companies hundreds of millions of dollars, ultimately $10 billion in damages, more by far than anything we'd ever seen before. I went back to Ukraine and spent this kind of whirlwind week getting almost like an oral history of the effects of this malware that had just kind of carpet bombed the entire internet of Ukraine. Before it spread to the West, it just really devastated the Ukrainian entire digital ecosystem. And it took down hundreds of companies, every government agency, hospitals, hit every power company multiple airports. In Ukraine, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say it is the kind of cyber apocalyptic event we've been waiting for. And I heard from each of these Ukrainian sources, their kind of personal story of like, so I you know, I spent the day trying to rescue the entire health ministry's network, and then I left to go home and found that I couldn't swipe my card to get on the subway, and then I had to go try to find cash to buy a physical token to get on the metro, but actually all the ATMs in the whole neighborhood were down, and I found one ATM that had some cash, but like a tiny cash limit, and I waited in line to get some cash and then I managed to buy this token and get to my neighborhood. But then I tried to buy groceries and the payment system was down in my grocery store and I had to go back out into this kind of chaotic, you know, fog of war. This feeling of one guy actually described it to me as a kind of feeling of uh, disorientation, as if he was missing a limb, that everything was broken. And other people described it as a kind of end of the world movie that they were suddenly in the middle of. So, Ukrainians were very willing to talk about this, and that was easy if you just go there and ask. The real challenge was to get somebody outside of Ukraine to tell the story of how their institution was just devastated by this. And we knew because all of these multinationals had reported to their shareholders hundreds of millions of dollars in damages, like Maersk, the world's biggest shipping firm, had lost $300 million. FedEx had lost $400 million. Merck, the pharmaceutical company, had lost $870 million. So I just started the kind of um, really laborious process of building a new beat of trying to get any of these companies that I didn't cover at all to tell me that story and none of them would officially so it was all just back channeling with anonymous sources and
3: How did you find them? Wait, where Were they like, like I, trolling LinkedIn and just being like you work for
0: yeah, I don't drop me a note I don't want to say exactly because ultimately I succeeded <laughs> in the sources who were yeah. brave enough to talk to me I don't want to give them away or even give any Yeah fair enough, enough. but I, you know, I first thought I was going to get the story from Merck and then the sources got scared and I didn't get it well I ultimately did but it took finding it from another company first, and that company was Maersk, the world's biggest shipping conglomerate. And it did take like six months of back-channeling with like um, Maersk and ex-Maersk staffers until finally I could kind of reconstruct the experience of being inside of Maersk as, as one staffer described it to me, every screen in the building of their Copenhagen headquarters went black. And he talked about looking up from his computer and just seeing a wave of black screens, just black, 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 black across the room. And then the kind of physical instantiation of that digital disruption, which for Amerisk, you know, includes 76 terminals that they own around the world and ports across the entire globe. And 17 of those terminals were entirely taken down by Napetya. So that means that container ships the size of the Empire State Building with an Empire State Building's worth of cargo on top of them are arriving at ports and nobody knows what's on them nobody knows how to unload them and thousands of trucks are lining up at each one of these terminals and they can't get in because the the gates outside the port is dead and locked and the voiceover IP system that's supposed to tell them where to go to pick up stuff and drop it off is not working. And so Maersk can't even email the truck drivers or the trucking companies or the cargo owners to tell them what's happening. And tens of thousands of trucks are lining up at ports from like Los Angeles to New Jersey to Spain to the Netherlands to India. It's like this global calamity. And that wasn't just happening at 17 Maersk terminals and all of their offices across the world, but also at FedEx. And And Merck, I eventually, you know, once I told the story of Maersk in a Wired piece, another follow-up Wired feature, some more companies started to get
3: braver. So did you at some point take everything you'd gotten from the insiders and present it to them and be
0: like, look, I know what happened here? Maersk never talked, and in fact, none of these companies ever talked to me officially. Mm. It was just their these poor, traumatized employees who had experienced this and just had to tell somebody about the craziest day of their life, June 27, 2017, when just everything broke. And then the really painful recovery process for each of them, too. I mean, the question is, like, how do you lose hundreds of millions of dollars? Like, this is is how you do it, by having your entire company be taken down for weeks or months to... Like, Your entire business completely disrupted. Maersk didn't return to any kind of normalcy for like two months, and this is a company that does a fifth of the world's total shipping capacity. So, and I, I felt like I was going a little crazy because I was also talking to security researchers who had put together that NotPetya was carried out by the same Sandworm hackers, the same group that had done these kind of escalating attacks in Ukraine for years. And yet none of these companies were willing to say that Russia had done this to them. And in fact, no governments were either for months and months. And I could see this and I was talking to people who had experienced this, but uh, it was like this kind of feeling of being almost gaslit that nobody was willing to say the truth. And these companies were so afraid, I think, of the victim shaming mentality of the cybersecurity press that they weren't willing to talk about this calamitous thing that had happened to them. It was really bizarre. And it's like a I think it's a lesson for that we need to think about these things differently, that this was not some kind of hacker breach that the company should be blamed for entirely. Like this was an act of cyber war by a nation state that should have been held accountable. And Maersk and Merck and FedEx should have from the beginning said this was Russia that did this to us. And the whole story of this book is that the US government failed to call out Russia for years as it became clear that things were happening in Ukraine that were not okay, that no nation should be turning off the lights to civilians. But they watched this unfold because it looked like a faraway foreign conflict that didn't matter to Americans until suddenly it did. Until yeah. suddenly Merck, a New Jersey company, was losing hundreds of millions of dollars and their ability to manufacture like an HPV vaccine was destroyed. And hospitals across the US were also shut down or had their medical record systems shut down by NotPetya too. So, that's sort of um, the ultimate, like, that was the, like, cyber Pearl Harbor fear. Was that, you right, know, right. that was one of the things that people would always cite. These are, like, all the red lines that we thought were moments when you would say to Russia, this is not okay. You've essentially done the equivalent of, like, a cyber war crime, and um, we're going to hold you accountable for this. But it would take eight months for the U.S. government to even name Russia as the perpetrator of not Petya. But so that feels like a whole issue
3: also just in the world of journalism and or research around cyber attacks is this like attribution question and like whether you can attribute something to particular people and what it takes and what the standards are. So where did you kind of set your baseline in terms of what do I need in order to be able to write that this was these
0: people? Yeah, well. I say partners from the beginning knew that these were Russian hackers, right? Because they'd found that that Russian language file. And it was you know, pretty clear, like, who else is going to be attacking Ukraine, the country that Russia has invaded for years and years as a physical war unfolded in the country. So it was, like, pretty clear that this was likely to be Russia that was carrying this out and, and that this was a state-sponsored cyber war. But this is a kind of detective story where I was speaking to security researchers who were following sandworm and seeing its attacks escalate, uh, tying them together with fingerprints to show that it was one group that was doing these terrible things one after another and trying to warn people and being ignored mm-hmm. like these Cassandras. But ultimately, what kind of confirmed their theories was that the U.S. government did too little and too late, but they did name Notpetya as an act of the Russian military, And then by the end of my reporting, GCHQ in the UK also put out this kind of helpful confirmation that the following things are all the work of one Russian agency, the GRU, this military intelligence agency. And that was almost like an answer key. Like I had been hearing that and it was almost confirmed that Sandworm was a a group within the GRU. But that was the final confirmation. And the government's intelligence agencies in the West, the NSA Uh, GCHQ, they will put out these conclusions from time to time, but they won't put out the evidence. And security researchers in the private cybersecurity industry that I speak to, they'll give you evidence, but they don't have those ultimate conclusions. But when you put them together, you can kind of create this forensic web. What is it like to almost
3: be engaged? I mean, it's a detective story, but you're like engaged with this mysterious, shadowy group of people that you can't make contact with. Like, as a reporter, how do you approach kind of like just circling them around it's almost like a frank sinatra has a cold except with like a group of state-sponsored hackers
0: has a cold you can't (laughs) they don't do interviews yeah exactly like these kind of like military intelligence agents who assassinate people and
3: they don't respond to your emails uh, or
0: they don't answer emails and i eventually by the end of the reporting i was standing outside of the building where i believe sandworm is based and you know, looking up at, like, the windows where I think that they're probably working inside, but I didn't have the guts to, like, knock on the door and ask for an interview with Unit 74455 of this, you know, insanely aggressive and dangerous um, intelligence agency. But that is the big challenge. Like, I kind of knew I was never going to get access to Sandworm, uh, which is the title of the book. So it was all about drawing a picture around this invisible monster. It's like a... I described it... um, to some publishers when I was trying to sell it as like a monster story where you never quite see the monster it's in the shadows. And, um, but you tell the story through the perspective of the detectives who are tracking sandworm. And then ultimately through the victims, the story kind of shifts from being a detective story to a disaster story where you are kind of capturing the very human experience of the panic and disorientation and desperation of these victims who are coming under one kind of, uh, disastrous cyber attack after another. I also sometimes think that if I were to get access to the hackers, their story is just kind of sitting in front of a computer and, and typing. But on the other ends of that attack, things are blowing up and breaking. And, you know, um, a kind of Armageddon is, uh, that maybe is a bit much, but a kind of national scale crisis is unfolding. So that's the end where you really want to tell the story more uh, than yeah. the the actual actions of these hackers inside of a, of a building in Moscow.
3: The other thing that that really fascinated me is a challenge of the book, which I thought you tackled very, very well. And I learned a lot from the book just through the course of the story without getting taken out of it, was there's so much background of different things that you have to explain. So like the history of the Ukraine, for instance, and then like the history of the GRU, and then like Dune. Like there's all these parts of the book that have to be explained. And I'm curious how you struck that balance in the writing of the book in terms of trying to figure out who who is the reader of this and what do they need to
0: know right i mean i did feel that it was important to for instance show how distinguished sandworm is from the history of state sponsored cyber attacks i mean we've seen all kinds of state sponsored espionage in the past we've seen of course like all kinds of cyber crime we've even seen like sort of proto cyber wars before we've seen russia bombard every website in Estonia with attacks that took down you know, their entire kind of national web. But that's just the web. I mean, it's not like power grids. It's not hospitals. And we've seen the U.S. launch the first ever piece of malware, Stuxnet, in 2009, 2010, that actually destroyed physical equipment that got inside of Iranian nuclear enrichment facilities and blew up centrifuges that they were using to try to make nuclear weapons. But those were still kind of just like early exercises in cyber war. They were like one-off acts of cyber war experimentation. So I, I felt like I had to tell that history and tell it as best I could with like some new perspectives and human stories. But it was important to set off how different Sandworm was, that it was so much more aggressive. And they kind of um, did a new act of cyber war we'd never seen before every month in the height of this you know, UK- Ukrainian campaign. But it was also, as you said, important to tell the story of Ukraine, how it had been for generations, in fact, centuries, this kind of um, borderland between East and West that had just been invaded by the Mongols and the Turks and the Tatars and then the Nazis and then the Soviets and it had become this kind of Russian punching bag for so long. And how the world had kind of allowed these tragedies in Ukraine to continue for you know centuries. But in this case, this is one conflict where we thought we could ignore it. And then it turns out, actually, you know, the geography has changed. Ukraine has always been this victim of its geography. But now, in cyber war, geography works by different rules. And we are all kind of on the border of our adversary, we are all in the same position as Ukraine. Ukraine's name means borderland. And in, in this new kind of era of cyber war, we all essentially live on that borderland. And and that's why the lessons of Ukraine should have been heeded earlier. And, and in fact, what befell Ukraine also hit the rest of us, too, for the first time after, you know, a millennia of that kind of oppression. Which, of
3: course, was before uh, Ukraine became sort of
0: like a word in our national
3: lexicon representing uh, presidential yeah, presidential I mean, behavior. Like this is all pre-Zelensky.
0: Pre yeah, yeah exactly. Mean? Yeah, I mean, Ukraine has been this kind of like nation-sized political football to be kicked around for its entire history. And now it's just kind of like playing out again in the pettiest and silliest way, but <laughs> one that could also get the president impeached. So it's a very strange thing to be looking at Ukraine for three years and now suddenly, you know, everyone's talking about it. But I imagine it's even stranger to be Ukrainian and have lived your life and kind of being ignored, even when Russia invades. And now all of a sudden everybody wants to talk about Ukraine for this (laughs) very strange reason. Have you talked to any of your sources about that new spotlight? I haven't. I keep, you know, I I talk to them about like what might still be happening to them in this cyber war that is probably not over but um, no, I'm not like super interested <laughs> in good pro quos and, and Zelensky and all that stuff. And what
3: in terms of your kind of I'm very interested in your personal cybersecurity when it comes to the GRU is uh, they're not messing around when it comes to not just hacking, but also physical security, like assassinations outside of Russia. And I know you'll say, like, I wasn't that worried about my physical danger necessarily, probably. But what are your systems for? monitoring whether you're being tracked you're being hacked like how do you approach dealing with these characters even at
0: a distance i was not that worried about my physical security i don't think i'm that important to the russian government or even to sandworm uh sometimes i think they may be kind of excited that i'm giving them this credit for being as dangerous as they are and like somebody finally somebody noticed how terrible (laughs) and scary we are we've been leaving clues like russian manuals all over the place yeah um exactly but yeah, I'm, I am mostly worried about them hacking my computers and spying on my sources and stuff, and that's very hard to prevent. I take the kind of normal precautions. I don't know if I should say exactly what they are, because then, then <laughs> um, because you're kind of like giving a roadmap to get around them, that's maybe. True, that's uh, true. Uh, but you know, this is a group that possesses zero days in some cases, like you know, secret hacking techniques that you know exploiting unpatched vulnerabilities in software, and there's no real way to stay safe from that if they want to get you. So I you know I did my best to protect sources and use encrypted communications and delete as much stuff before publication as possible and a lot of uh, especially for like those anonymous Maersk sources most of my sources were ready to have their stories told sooner or later so it wasn't that fraught of a territory but but it is scary. I, I worry a lot about like a, the kind of hacking and leaking operation we saw against the Clinton campaign where they just are trying to embarrass people and what mm-hmm. would that look like in my inbox? Do you feel
3: like you use email and digital technologies differently because you're
0: afraid of that? Like you're careful about what you put into emails? Um, probably not. It's hard to live that way, yeah. you know. Like I went to Russia for 2 weeks in this for this book and I lived in like a state of f- full 100% paranoia with like burner laptop burner phone not connecting to any of my accounts and it was a really terrible and lonely experience to be in moscow in the middle of winter with like no ability to even talk to friends and and then nothing even happens like it was a total disappointment after going to all this trouble (laughs) i got no sign that they even cared that i was there i was most worried that they would just grab me and take my computers and that's the easiest way to get access to my stuff when i'm in russia but um I did that for two weeks and it was terrible and I, it's hard to live with that kind of uh, paranoia in your normal life. You know, you can kind of get yourself psyched up to play those spy games for only so long.
3: Well, it's kind of a microcosm of what happens when one of these attacks actually takes place, when everything goes down. Like you experienced that,
0: but it was self-imposed. Well, if only I'd had like a better story to tell, you know, that um, I can't compare myself <laughs> to these like victims of, of actual cyber attacks. Cause, if any cyber attack has hit me, it's the kind of insidious form that just hangs out on your computer and watches your keystrokes and all that, which is very possible, but that's not a very fun story either so far. There's <laughs> nothing to tell. And, um, right. I, yeah.
3: Until it uh, emerges as whatever's planted on your computer actually takes effect.
0: Yeah. And it may, it may never, I mean, maybe it's just like old fashioned espionage where you never actually know you're being spied on. You just find that your reporting is foiled in various <laughs> ways and Or they just know everything I know, and who knows what the effects of that could be.
3: Yeah. So I'm interested in going way back to uh, the beginning of your career, and even before that, in terms of... Were you a kid that was a tech-interested
0: kid, or like a writing-interested kid? I... I maybe neither actually I mean I was just like a nerdy kid who liked Star Trek and wanted I don't know I was just like interested in lots of things in college I didn't study journalism I studied philosophy and Chinese and music and I, I figured journalism would just be like a fun way to maybe make a living as you continue to learn about all kinds of different things and I definitely was on the internet very early like I was on bulletin boards. And, you know, I feel like I discovered the web as soon as it existed. I remember Netscape Navigator and all, you know, all that stuff. But uh, I was, you know, I was not like a true tech geek or anything. But then once I became, I tried to freelance and I started out in China actually working. So this freelancer. is like straight out of college you tried to freelance? Yeah, right. I found that the internet is kind of like a this wellspring of stories and not only is it just right in front of you and there's all this kind of infinite intrigue to explore, but it was still early enough in like the mid-2000s that just like the the internet itself was like this new thing and everything that was happening there felt kind of new and newsy. So um, it's sort of like how the internet changes this or that was um, my lens for finding a lot of stories. And in China, that was about censorship and the kind of Dissident underground and how they operated and communicated in China. And then when I came back, and so you just picked up and moved there and said, I'll figure it out from there, or did you yeah, have some sort of gig lined up? Of I had like kind? a really silly nonprofit, like part time job, and then I was writing for like Time Out Beijing on the side and not really managing to make it work as a China journalist, although I spoke Chinese and like really wanted it to work. Um, but I, when I decided I needed to like get a real job. I came back to the U.S. I went to journalism school. I did like a business journalism grad program because I was just so determined, like, this is how I'm going to get a job, right? Like this is serious journalism. I don't care about business, but I'm going to pretend I do, um, for a little while to actually get a job. And then when I, um, when I did get a job at Forbes magazine, I found that that was still what fascinated me. Like, uh, these kind of underground conflicts happening on the internet the week that i started at forbes also the security writer left and she had been more of a national security writer but i was like the nerdy replacement for her so i made it more about cybersecurity. and like some of the first stories i wrote were not even about hacking but about like black hat search engine optimization schemes and this kind of cat and mouse between um, these shady operators and Google and stuff like that. and But then I started going to hacker conferences and building that source base of real hackers had like DEF CON and Black Hat and those places. And slowly that became my, my thing, covering uh, initially more like cyber crime and cybersecurity research, but then more recently more like state-sponsored hacking, like the, in some ways, harder stuff to cover because you really can never speak to the hacker's because they're inside of intelligence agencies. But they're doing the things in the world that we are most worried about, the most advanced hacking with zero-day vulnerabilities and doing disruptive attacks that don't just steal credit cards in this kind of rote, boring way, but are innovating insane ways of causing terrible digital disruption. And how did you,
3: when you were sort of like coming up in that beat and starting to get to know hackers and sort of building this network of people, how did you kind of deal with reporting on people who in my experience can be quite unreliable and also and at times quite unsavory in terms of what their goals are and what their actions are and then your job is to portray them how is the question like how to kind of like bring them to life and not have them just be sitting in front of the computer typing but how did you kind of approach that issue
0: yeah i mean there are different ways to write about hackers and it really depends on who they are like the easiest way I found was to write about security researchers. And that was like kind of a a big bread and butter part of my beat for a while was to cover sort of white hat or gray hat hackers who would um, find and demonstrate vulnerabilities in software. And sometimes those demonstrations were really crazy and impressive, like a guy who found a way to make a worm that would take over every iPhone in the world and just spread from one to the next. That was, like, in 2008. And then, uh, actually, that same hacker was the one who would put me in a in a Jeep. Like, oh, that was the same, that was the same person? Later. Yeah, and then um, an internet-connected Jeep, like, with an internet connection in its dashboard, and then hack into that Jeep and shut it down on the highway and strand me in the middle of highway traffic. Um, those stories... I love that story. That's one were, of my favorite stories. Thank you, but but it feels like... The audience is getting very jaded. They're no longer impressed with just demonstrations of these (laughs) terrifying things. You have to actually uh, be victimized or find real victims. You have to find, like, the actual stories of people being hacked, which is a really different kind of reporting. And um, what I focused on in this book really was, like, following two kinds of people, the detectives, the threat intelligence industry, rather than the vulnerability research industry. And then also finding those victims, which is probably the most time consuming and real reporting that I do now.
3: And is that it seems different than sort of swimming in the world of hackers in terms of they're not going to they're not going to come to you with their victim stories necessarily? Or do they do you feel like you have a a profile where you get approached with people who say like this crazy thing
0: happened to me? I get that, should tell that story. all the time. And, yeah. and often it's like, you know, I'm being hacked by the Russians and I have like a radio in my tooth and um, <laughs> you, don't, you don't know if like it's, it's really difficult to filter those stories to find the real ones. It's much more effective I find when I'm seeking out the victims actively myself.
3: And the other another set of kind of stories that you've done over the years that I've always been fascinated in, and followed are the sort of like dark markets and cryptocurrency. In fact, I would say that you and I now both exist on the on the, on the dark
0: web, on the, really? well, yes,
3: um, yes, On the dark web, but also on the uh, on the list of people that have investigated uh, Satoshi Nakamoto. Oh, and, that's right. And yeah. uh, made some stab at trying to figure out who was the inventor of Bitcoin. I'm curious what your what's your
0: level of trauma from having attempted to do that? It was pretty. <laughs> I, I think higher than yours. You were. <laughs> it's still um, new for me. It's only been like six months. You were wise enough to write the story that's like, here's who might be a candidate for Satoshi Nakamoto, but I don't actually even think it's rights. I mean, that was basically <laughs> mine. Was the ultimate
3: like, in the headline uh, of your. Squirm. Um,
0: whereas mine was like i'm pretty sure i found him but actually maybe not Uh, it turns out we i think our headline had probably maybe in it which is a little unorthodox but it really seems i fell into this trap that i think a lot of journalists have now of um kind of like seeing the mirage the mirage of satoshi nakamoto shape form around someone but in my case it was a like an especially nasty trap because I was actually leaked documents from a source, a real source, I still believe, from the kind of private files of Craig Wright that seemed to indicate that he really was Satoshi Nakamoto. It wasn't that Craig Wright came to me and claimed to be Satoshi somehow. And I, I still don't know exactly what happened, but it seems like Craig Wright actually had falsified, forged documents somehow on his computer that were leaked to me and it was a real leak of fake documents. I mean, this sounds like something Trump would say. But um, but uh, the leak seemed so real. The source, I still believe, was real. But the documents turned out to be fake. And it was a terrible trap to fall into because it really seemed like we had reams of evidence. In fact, that Craig Wright was Satoshi Nakamoto, like accounting documents and emails and blog posts. And uh, we still didn't actually say Craig Wright is Satoshi Nakamoto in yeah. our piece. I want to make that clear. We said it's <laughs> we. This guy is probably the creator of Bitcoin, and then you know the next day we we're like, actually, probably not. Um, it turns <laughs> out um, maybe not the next day. I think it was probably like the next week that we started to have our doubts. Yeah. Well, it's
3: like I mean, it is the kind of worst nightmare in terms of as a reporter, like getting something that authenticates in all these different ways, but then something at the very bottom that you can't see. There's, like, malfeasance, like, sitting down there that you can't access. I'm wondering if, did that experience change how you approached, you know, reporting for this book or other reporting that you do in terms of when people give you documents or give you stories that you feel like you need to validate at some other level? I mean, in some ways, it's impossible to get to that level. If someone's forging something, it's yeah. pretty difficult.
0: I think it made me, like, a a more gunshy reporter in a lot of ways. But yeah, I I tried not to run with any kind of claims in this book. This very shadowy area of like trying to attribute cyber attacks, which so much of the security industry doesn't even want to try to do. They think it's too kind of politically controversial to name Russia as having carried out this or the GRU as having done that. But um, a few are brave enough to make those claims. But even then, yeah, I, I didn't want to just straight up accept them from any of these companies that even the ones that kind of function as privates, almost like private intelligence agencies like FireEye and CrowdStrike. So it was all about kind of corroborating them with each other and then ultimately looking for confirmation in the few breadcrumbs that are thrown out by actual government intelligence agencies who generally get this stuff right. I mean, I can't think of a time when the NSA or GCHQ has said this cyber attack was done by Russia and that was wrong. They have a pretty good track record. So that's kind of the closest to ground truth that we can come to. And it it was just enough in this case that I can say, here is the story of this one hacker group, Sandworm, and here is the evidence that, in fact, this is all one thread that ties together these actions.
3: There's a really funny moment with, I think it's one of the Ukrainian guys, actually, that's where you're trying to talk about attribution to the Russians, and he's just, like, waving his hands, like, refusing
0: to even address that issue. Yeah, it's this kind of bizarre thing that this, even in Ukraine that this was like one exception to the Ukrainians always being willing to point to Russia. It, like security companies don't want to do attribution because I think they don't want to offend people and because it's hard and they don't want to get it wrong. But I need to do attribution because that's how, as a journalist, you hold people accountable. I mean, the cybersecurity industry says you don't need to know if it's a Russian or a Chinese hacker who's breaking into your network. You just need to defend yourself. But that might work if you are just like the chief information security officer of some company, but I care about like the geopolitical implications of these attacks and trying to prove that like, this was Russia and, in fact, we need to hold Russia accountable and, you know, the US knew that it was Russia and we failed to say so and those kinds of things. I mean, attribution, of course, is important in that bigger journalistic and geopolitical sense. So yeah, that that was a big challenge to kind of butt heads with the security analysts, even in Ukraine, who when you say the word Russia, they kind of wag their finger and they say, I didn't say it was Russia. Um yeah, but that happens much more in the US. And it also happens when you talk to Kaspersky, who is a Russian company that does really good work on this stuff, but is also based in Russia. So you find yourself getting so close to proving that it's Russia, but you can't say it out loud in the room, like they won't say it out loud. It's this very strange elephant in the room.
3: How do you kind of hold the line between a sort of journalist and a kind of cybersecurity expert? Like, do you draw a line or do you feel like it's your job to talk about what the future dangers are or to hold the line to what has
0: happened? The book is definitely partly about prognostication and like what, you know, the trend lines and what's going to be the next terrible thing, what's going to be the next big innovation and cyber war. But I want to be clear that it's like not one of those cyber war prediction books. Like this is about a cyber war that happens. In terms of trying to kind of draw the line between being a cyber war journalist and a cybersecurity expert, I, I don't have great answers to the question, you know, how do you protect yourself? Because it's just a is such a crazy, impossible problem. And there are so many points of ingress for hackers. And there's so many companies that want to sell you a solution, each of which has a totally different approach and a different thing they want to make you worried about. So the, the kind of lesson from the book that I'm trying to get across is that governments, Western governments, the US government needs to solve this problem with diplomacy, needs to draw red lines, needs to write up a kind of Geneva Convention for the Internet and make clear to Russia that what they did in Ukraine was not okay, even before it spilled out and hit us. That this is not just about our self-interest; it's about um, creating norms for what's okay. Like maybe you can do cyber war if it's just targeting military and government targets, but you know the moment that you hit a hospital, that's a war crime. And our government has entirely failed to draw those lines, to set those rules. And that is probably the most important way that we can protect all of these institutions from those really dangerous sorts of cyber attacks is by making clear that they're not okay, that there are consequences.
3: So the one thing we didn't quite touch on is, um, I mean, there's an evolution of these tools. And it seems like from my reading of the book, there's an argument that you're sort of implicitly making that without the U.S. having pursued these offensive tools in zero days, maybe none of this, ha- maybe not none of this happens,
0: but none of it happens in the same way. Yeah, I mean, the, the argument of the book, I mean, they're, the kind of bigger I- idea that I try to get across is that the U.S. government has failed to contain and constrain global cyber war. But that's a kind of collection of failures. There are other ways that we have pushed forward this arms race by trying to maintain our own capabilities to do these things. And I think that's why, in fact, there is no Geneva Convention for cyber war, because the US government is too kind of um, trigger happy with our own ability to use these things. Like, In fact, both Obama and Trump administration officials told me that, yes, we want to maintain the ability to turn off the lights in the middle of a war. We want to be able to take down networks, and i think that's why we haven't pushed these rules because it's kind of like lord of the rings where like everyone is just attracted to this power rather than seeking to destroy it or constrain it and and that's why you know every year we're seeing new innovations and in disruption and destructive cyber attacks it's because uh Governments all think that they can use this to advance their agenda, and they are more interested in that than they are in kind of um, creating a cyber piece, if you want to call it that.
3: Is the, It's obviously a, a growth industry in terms of the actual attacks. But for you as a reporter, does it feel like, do you get tired of reporting on cyber attacks?
0: Um, no, I mean, it's it's pretty action-packed. I guess when I finished this book, I, I was a little worried that by the time it came out, we would be at cyber war with <laughs> Iran instead, and then like um, it would all be irrelevant. It's so fast-moving that it can be a little overwhelming. And um, luckily, for many reasons, NotPetya Petya is still the worst cyber attack in history a year after I finished writing this, and it's finally in print. You know? But it's difficult to write even a magazine story that remains updated and true by the time it comes out in a kind of world where the new aggressive things happening are advancing so quickly. So given that we're not well protected in a
3: general sense, are you a person who's like personally prepared for everything to go down? Is the result of all this reporting that you're like, you have a bag of cash and
0: like analog uh, solutions for every problem? It's, I, you know, I don't. And um, that's probably really foolish, but it's just so hard to imagine. Even for me and I have talked to Ukrainians and people inside of these companies as they watch this happen, but um, it's just really hard to imagine a world where not to mention like electricity but even just like all of your digital systems go down. How do you prepare for that world? like what do you what do you do? But yeah, probably I should just like start taking out my my maximum uh, withdrawal from an ATM every day for the next six months (laughs) Um,
3: well I could say if you read this book you will want to do that because I did want to do that Um, Andy thank you for coming on the podcast thank you all for
0: being here thank you for having me
3: That's it for this week's long form podcast. I'm your co-host, Evan Ratliff. Thank you to Andy Greenberg for doing that with me at uh, the Wired Magazine, Wired 25 Festival. Andy's book is called Sandworm, A New Era of Cyberwar and the Hunt for the Kremlin's Most Dangerous Hackers. And thanks to Wired for putting that on. Thanks as well to my co-hosts, as always, Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. our wonderful editor, Janelle Pfeiffer, and our intern, Marina Clementi. As always, we thank our sponsors, MailChimp, and pit writers we will see you next week